0: This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I did I did get some student feedback.
1: They probably said, great Yoda shirt. You're wearing a Yoda <laughs> shirt right now for the listeners at
0: home. Just to be clear, like, this is a baby Yoda. This is a growth Yoda. I see. Yoda Sorry. Shirt, not Yoda. Sorry about
1: that. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we discuss finding your niche and your voice as an educator. Stay with us.
0: And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 180. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arniman, And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, I put a little extra majesty on the 180 this week. <laughs>
1: you always do, Josh. Every every single episode is a milestone just by definition, and you get excited. I love it.
0: I think it's like the older you get every additional year that you're alive becomes a bigger and bigger deal, and I think our podcast episodes are getting that way, too. You know, we're getting up in the high numbers. Half of 360, Josh. We've almost come full circle. <laughs> That was pretty good, Dan.
1: You've been thinking of that one. No, I sure haven't. Uh, Josh, tell us about tonight's beer. You picked an unusual one for us. This is Bell's, which we've had before, from Comstock, Michigan. But tell us about the beer.
0: Yeah, many many listeners, and you I know, Dan, might be familiar with the Bell's Two-Hearted Ale. We've had several. Yeah, and this is the Bell's Bright White Belgian-Inspired Wheat Ale, And Dan, our listeners uh, who who tuned into 179 might know that I was trying to help us branch out a bit, and I know, Dan, you've been interested in exploring uh, Belgian-style beers, so I picked up a few of these. So this one has a lot of similarities to the beer we sampled in episode 179, which was the Allagash White Belgian-style wheat beer. So a lot of similar words to the words that uh, describe this beer. A white ale, a wheat, Belgian... Yeah, lots of things. However, this is what I thought was interesting, Dan. So the description of the Bell's Bright White that we're sampling uh, today says that it is fermented with a Belgian ale yeast strain, a blend of barley and wheat malts, yield a mixture of clove and fruity aromas, all without the use of any spices. So one thing you might know, Dan, of uh, Belgian-style beers is they all have this... This sort of light characteristic, but often there's this addition of various spices. And in fact, the Allagash white Belgian ale that we had uh, in the last episode was a wheat beer with coriander and orange
1: peel. Much stronger spice profile. And they actually added those spices, right?
0: They did. And this one, uh, I think the idea of the bright white is a beer that is brewed in that style where you would normally... A uh, brewer would add spices, but here no spices. So it's almost like a good control Belgian beer. So I'm I am trying to
1: taste clove, and I'm not sure I'm getting it. You know what this tastes most close to to me? What's that? Took me a minute. Blue Moon. Well, that's what we said in the last episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I don't know. If
1: that's I true. picked. You sent me a picture of this bottle so I could dig it out of the bottom of the crisper drawer, which is where I keep my podcast beer. And I was like man, have we already gotten onto White Claw? That's what I saw. The label is, is kind of um, White Claw-esque. So maybe next episode, you and I can delve into the White
0: Claw. Well, you know, Dan, I wish that I still had a bottle of the Allagash White with the spices added because I think had I not read the description, I would have thought there's some kind of spices added to this one. So okay, it makes me wonder if the addition of spices in a Belgian style beer, how much bang for the buck you actually get from those spices versus flavor profile that you get purely from using this style of, of yeast and wheat uh, and just the brewing process of this, this type of beer.
1: Did you uh, pour your
0: beer, Josh? Oh, you're right out of the bottle. Same, same here. I can't see it. I know. I'm sure it's a light color. I I wish I was actually drinking this out of a glass. But I tell you what I'm not going to do, Dan, I'm not going to walk all the way downstairs and get a glass. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Probably the right choice. Well, mistakes were made, but uh, we will move on with the show. Josh, we want to thank our sponsors at Promega. You know, using live cells in research is pivotal to understanding in vivo mechanisms and conditions. And cell line authentication is key to success and reproducibility in science you can learn all about proper cell culture techniques, whether you use 2D or 3D culture systems at promega.com slash hello cells.
0: All right. Thanks, Dan. Let's get on with our topic of the week. All right, Dan, this is a really exciting episode. So, a couple of weeks ago, we did we did a repeat last week, but the episode before that on our feed, uh, episode 179, you did an interview with Dr. Elena Talboy, and she recently wrote a book entitled What I Wish I Knew, A Field Guide for Thriving in Graduate Studies. And And what you talked to her a little bit about, Dan, was the education side, the becoming an educator, becoming a teacher side, which we had a listener question um, who was asking, about, you know, what do I do? Is there a path for me if I'm a graduate student, but I really love teaching and that's, that's what I want to do for my job. And so we had a great conversation with Elena on episode 179 about ways to find opportunities for teaching experience to one, I guess, find out if you like teaching in the first place, but also um, to help set you up to be uh, competitive for those types of positions after grad school.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, it was really, the the nuts and bolts of what are some opportunities a grad school a grad student can have um, from being at something like a TA, which I think many people are familiar with, all the way up to being an adjunct uh, professor at maybe a a university different from the one you're studying at, and the steps you have to take to get there. It's not um, day one, I leap into those roles. So she covered a lot of the steps that you would need to take to get those experiences. And if that's something you want to do, I think it's a great introduction to uh, what you would need to do to to get there. But this week, um, part of our conversation that I want to share is more philosophical. It's about what it means to be an educator, what kind of educator you want to be. How do you go about um, thinking about your role as as somebody who teaches, as a communicator? And uh, you know, we cover all of that philosophical stuff all the way down to the, the real world examples of like what should you do with your teaching reviews from students. When they do their course review at the end of the semester, should you read those? Should you throw them in the garbage? And I think she has a lot of great advice on that topic.
0: All right, Dan, I think there's a lot of good stuff here. So let's play part two of your interview with Elena.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit into, I think, what is the heart of this chapter for you, which is what it means to be an educator. And it's not just mm-hmm. about, here are the nuts and bolts of how to create a grading yep. rubric. Yep, yep. You encourage students that are doing this to be intentional about what kind of educator they want to be. What does that mean?
2: Mm -hmm. So when I think about the educator that I want to be, if I really sit and think about what I love about educating others is I love light bulb moments. I love those moments where students are working through something challenging and they have that like, uh aha, and their face lights up and they're like, I get it. And it's the coolest feeling in the world seeing that happen. I love teaching people. And this is something I didn't know about myself until I started teaching in graduate school, actually.
1: Yeah. How would you find out until you did it?
2: Exactly, exactly. So the problem is when I went into to to teach my first session, I sucked at public speaking. I read from the slides. I was inflexible, and I didn't really know what it meant to be an educator. And I I will fully own that I was atrocious as a teacher that first year. I had a lot of issues I had to work through. I mean, you must have been nervous. I was very, very, very nervous. I didn't like public speaking. I was actually very phobic of it. And it, it was a bad it year. It showed, apparently so it showed through. It showed, yeah. yeah. But I ended up sitting down, I had a conversation with my teaching advisor of like, you know, how does, does this get easier? Because <laughs> I was, I was worried it would never get easier, but I would never really get an understanding of what it meant to be an educator. And she, she told me, you know, Think about the professors that you really like. And this is the advice I put directly in the book is directly from her is think about the professors you like. What is it that you liked about them? And then at the same time, think about the professors you hated. And what did you we've hate about them. their classes? And we've all had them. Every single one of us has had them. And I realized I was doing the stuff that I hated
0: from oh, the professors.
2: Yeah. And it for me, it was a fear and a lack of experience, and a lot of things that went into that. But I was doing everything I said like I shouldn't do. <laughs> and so that became a bit of a reflective exercise to figure out, well, how do I fix this? And so I started trying to model some of the things I loved about previous professors.
1: But but you're not going to be great on that first day. And nope. and so I've made my list now, and, I, and you encourage nope. people to ask their friends and, and to interview their friends yep. about who are professors what is it you loved about them? Which ones did Mm -hmm. you hate? Come up with a a list and and make a decision for yourself. What do you want to emulate about these people? And then how do you put that into practice?
2: Yeah, so this is the this is the harder part. And it's always the practice part. So it's the hardy part is you you have to practice. You could try out a couple of hats a couple of different ways. that semester that I was like testing out all the different things, my my student evaluations were were bad. (laughs) But like, you know, the students see it and they see what you're trying to do. And it either lands with them or it doesn't. And so for me, I had to practice through a couple of different ways of presenting information until I got to the point where I just, I got to a topic that I loved and it felt right the way I was presenting it. And this is where I became the, at least the start of the educator that I am today was I am the person that nerds out and like, I will own it to the end of the world. I could talk to you about neurons and neural pathways and decision-making and cognition and all of these really cool things because it is what I am passionate about. And so I try to find the classes that I feel super comfortable because I am such a geek about neurology that I am happy to pass that on to my students. And that is the way that I find I am actually connecting with my students because i get very passionate i get very animated i come up with some really cool ideas to present this really complicated information and that's because i love the topic so much
1: your enthusiasm so that's fills that room up.
2: yes yeah so that's how i came to this point that i'm at
1: okay and and that makes sense so that's that's making some decisions about what you're teaching to try to align it as much mm-hmm. as possible with what you're passionate about yep and and your yep. particular teaching style is to just be excited and geeky, and yep. that is your way of conveying that enthusiasm. Somebody else's might be that humor, somebody else's might be the the oration, but there's that core of caring about the material and wanting to share it. You Absolutely. write that the, the onus for success is on the student to show up prepared and ready to learn. However, the instructor is the one responsible for getting students invested in the material and helping them find ways to tie the material back to something that interests them. And so I think, yeah. I think that's nice because that's, they don't have to be necessarily excited about neurons the way you are, but if you can mm-hmm. help them relate that to something in their own world, in term, maybe they have a, a family member with mental illness, if they can understand mm-hmm. that, then it was worth learning about how those neurons operated, right? So it's making those connections for people, tying it to something that they do actually care about.
2: Absolutely. That's
1: exactly it. You talk very specifically about something called a teaching philosophy, which sounds like a written document. Can you just briefly unpack what a teaching philosophy looks like and how I can make one?
2: Yeah. And why so I would te- want one? Yes. So, a teaching philosophy is a typically one to two page document that you'll need to have when you're applying to academic positions.
1: Oh, is that right? They so ask for this. Ask for
2: they directly ask. Is that right?
1: Yes. Okay. Never that heard of it. Right. This is why yep. we're talking to you. <laughs>
2: Yep. If you are applying to any position, any professor, assistant professor title in higher education, you will need a teaching philosophy. And this is regardless of where you're applying to research, teaching, mixed, you will need one period. And so you have to be able to go through this exercise, figure out what kind of educator you are. And so this is where... Your teaching philosophy is one of your living documents, is what I refer to them, because you're going to update them continuously over time. It is a document that talks about how you engage with students, what are your core values that you are instilling in your class, and how how do you accomplish the learning outcomes that you set out. And so really, it is your entirety of how you teach and why you teach the way that you do. And the way I teach and the way I open my teaching philosophy, I have a copy of mine on my website if you want to go read it, but it opens with three pillars of scientific thinking, because I firmly believe if you approach life through scientific evaluation, and you try to take and understand what Microsoft calls a growth mindset of the world. You know, it is this idea that you always have something to learn. And so you have to be open and willing to understand and try to learn these new things that you're being exposed to. And that is how I set up my entire teaching philosophy.
1: (laughs) And and that has developed over time. So, so you started by kind of compiling a philosophy based on your experience as a, a student, yep. teaching a few courses. And then mm-hmm. as you've seen what worked and what didn't, then you can add to it, revise it, and then keep that up to yeah. date. That makes sense.
2: Yeah. And you eventually, even if you start off emulating one of your favorite professors, which is to me, I... Did that and I thought it was great. It worked out well for me, but I did, I evolved and I became my own style of educator. And I would hope that my philosophy reflected who I am as an educator, because that's really what that document is meant to do.
1: I think that makes sense. And that's, that's great advice for somebody because they can feel that blank page of a teaching philosophy can feel insurmountable. But if I start by adopting some of the style of somebody else, then Mm -hmm. as I do that, I'll learn, oh, actually, my style would make this a little bit different. It's kind of like, you know, the master painters, the Michelangelo's, the da Vinci's, they had Mm -hmm. apprentices who painted on their paintings in their style. And then over time, they developed their own style. So I think this is you would always copy the masters when you were learning to paint. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about.
2: Absolutely. That is, uh, is a great way to say that. Okay,
1: so I've got my teaching philosophy. I do want to take a brief <laughs> diversion into student uh, evaluations because yeah, you will yes. get them. What do I you do with will. them?
2: Oh, throw them away!
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think we're um,
1: we've we got a lot of advice today that's pretty iconoclastic. It's you know, go moonlight, just don't get caught. Throw away <laughs> your teaching evaluations. I love this.
2: I know I'm like the worst for giving advice.
1: <laughs> no, that's great, <laughs> but <laughs> so you're saying what everybody's doing.
2: Exactly, I, I'm just yeah sharing what people actually do. So it's not what university would say, but it's what I say. Pick and choose. So student evaluations are an interesting topic because, so I am a woman. I am a white woman in the U.S., so I do have a bit of privilege and less privilege than others. So on your spectrum, this is particularly relevant for women and particularly relevant for women of color. So. Mm, I will not sugarcoat this. You will get some terrible student evaluations that are based on your appearance, your manner of dress, how you talk to people, and all of the things that your male counterparts likely will not hear about.
1: And have nothing to do with your teaching
2: have absolutely nothing to do with your teaching. And this is kind of the fault of student evaluations is that students don't know anything about pedagogy and teaching approaches and what it takes to actually structure a class. So why do we ask them to evaluate the course end to end? But anyway, so you have these student evaluations. If you are a woman and particularly a woman of color, you are going to have some pretty awful ones. And like, I have one that I've kept for years that simply says, you're a bitch, <laughs> oh and gosh. that is all it. I, re- I got, kept it. Uh, I kept it. It's in my files somewhere, but it, it's just one of those reminders of like student evaluations are so. Well, it's
1: very, very deeply uh, reasoned useful. and thorough. That's must have been very helpful feedback for you. <laughs>
2: totally, totally helpful. And you know, what's interesting is the year that I got that student evaluation was the same year I won the provost award for excellence in undergraduate education.
1: you put it in your teaching philosophy, that should be, (laughs) this was really successful. I should do more of this.
2: I should do more of this. So, and the thing is I was teaching statistics which you either love or you hate it. So going into that class, I already knew I was going to have a dichotomy of evaluations here. And so the ones that were negative were nine times out of 10, always about my appearance, the way I dressed, the way I talked, all of these things that really were not what I, what I fade to this. So there, there were issues there, but then the ones that were positive, They were things like, I never understood statistics before now. I see statistics every day when I didn't notice them before. I know what this means now and I can use it to make decisions. And these are the evaluations that really are just so positive and so encouraging and they're great, but I have to slog through all the negative ones about my appearance and the way I walk. And it's like, why why take all the
1: arrows just to get to the few nuggets of, of inspiration. Uh, yeah, yep. you say don't read them ever. And then you recommend that. <laughs> and I think this is actually good advice. Because because why put that into your brain? Right? Why put this negativity yeah. into your brain when it's actually not substantive? It's not saying, oh, she went too fast, uh, you know, covering a topic, and we didn't understand it. And she didn't care. Like that'd be that'd oh. be feedback that you'd want to hear just the way you dress. Yeah, and, you can action
2: on that. Yep. So
1: what you recommend is to give it to somebody else to read and summarize for you. And I think that's great advice.
2: Yeah. So this is something that uh, one of my colleagues and I did was we would swap student evaluations and I would thumb through all of hers and I'd pull out all negative ones and put them in a pile and say like, these are the ones that are, (laughs) you know, these are ones you don't need to read. And these are the ones that actually have like constructive feedback and something that you could do, the positive feedback and all that. And she would do the same for me. And it was a great way to narrow down what that feedback was from the student's but again, students really can't help you inform your pedagogy and things like that. They can help you a little bit, but what I found most valuable was actually having my teaching mentor sit in on one of my lectures and talk about how I was doing. And then at some point, I did eventually get TAs, and I got feedback from them as well. Be aware that when you do that kind of a setup, your behavior will change slightly because of the observer effect. So just keep Eisenberg that in mind. Strikes again. <laughs> Oh. So there are so many other ways to get feedback. You don't need to rely on student evaluations. And if you have to rely on student evaluations, try to have someone flip through them first so you're not exposed to all that super negativity that obviously has stuck with me for a long time. I
1: also <laughs> need that person for Twitter replies. I think that'd be really <laughs> valuable. Okay. So I think we've, you know, We've at least, I think, given people who want to go this route, who want to understand what a career as an educator might be like, or even just getting some experience in grad school. And I Mm -hmm. want to just finish with, maybe there are reasons for me to get this experience, even if I don't go on to become an adjunct professor or a professor. And so can we talk a little bit about some of the transferable skills, the things that I might learn through this process that I can take with me? You're in an industry job now. So what, what have you taken with you out of all of this education experience?
2: Oh, man. So this is something that really catches students by surprise is I am still an educator every day. I still educate people every single day. And the thing is, As an educator in the university, you have teaching in front of a lecture, you have one-on-one individual meetings, you have study groups if you help run those. You are being an educator in a variety of situations with a variety of people that requires you to modify and change your message three or four times over to convey the exact same meaning. And I will tell you, I do this every single day. In industry, I have some people I work with who are also scientists that I could geek out with them about the scientific method and how we got this information that we got, and it's wonderful. And then there are some people who have never had a science course in their life, and I have to be able to explain to them the core concepts of what we learned and why it matters. There are people I work with in engineering who come from a very different kind of educational background, and I still need to be able to communicate with them. So the skill that I got from being an educator is the ability to translate really complicated information to a variety of audiences. So it still lands and it still sticks in their head. And that is such a valuable skill that I can't put a price on it.
1: That's huge. And you don't get that without practice. I mean, you may not be administering tests (laughs) in your work every day, but unless you have practiced teaching in front of the lecture hall with with sort of the high level and then maybe Mm -hmm. meeting with the student during office hours who didn't get the first time and needs to hear it again. And then the person after them during office hours who didn't get it in a different way and needs to hear it again. Doing that over and (laughs) over and over and over, I think stretches your brain to be able to explain topics in new ways. And so without having that practice, you you talk to your scientists, coworkers and have a great conversation, but then you go to the sales team and Mm -hmm. you just, they say, who is this person? And why does she keep saying this stuff? Like, we just don't understand what she wants from us. And and your career suffers, I think. So I think getting this experience, even if you don't want to go on to teach, you've convinced me, mm-hmm. extremely valuable.
2: It is. Absolutely. It is one of the things I lean on, if not as much, if not more than my actual scientific expertise.
1: And it's not just that, that meeting people where they are. I think, you know, we've talked about project management and organization leadership work back planning is
2: huge work
1: back planning (laughs) creativity that enthusiasm the confidence that you get the public speaking real life experience on outside of the classroom and i think that's what we want people to take home from this what didn't we talk about that we should have what did we miss
2: oh Oh, so much. If I can leave with a final thought is I know this book throws so much at you and it feels so overwhelming because grad school really is. It can be hard with a capital H, you know, there is a lot to manage, but you can do it and you're here and you were accepted. And that is amazing. And I want you to remember that because you can do it even with all this hard stuff, even with all the work that you're about to undertake. Like you can manage it and you'll get through it.
1: So true. So easy to lose sight of. And so thank you for reminding us. Elena Talboy, tell us where people can find your book and where they can find you online and remind them about your coffee chats.
2: Yes. So I host coffee chats every Friday. You can sign up for them. And my website is elenatalboy.com, com T is in Thomas, A-L-B as in Bravo, dot com. You can also find my book there and on Amazon and most major bookstores. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter as Statistress, Dr. Statistress. And then I also have a Facebook page that I check way less often, but it is there if you are on Facebook.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming back and for sharing your experience. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon.
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, Dan, thanks for that. That was great. And, and again, thanks to Elena for, for being on the show um, again to talk about this topic. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in this. And I know, Dan, this was when I was a grad student, probably my number one career path in my mind. You um, actually thought about teaching.
1: it this deeply?
0: No, I'm not going to say. Oh, you just that said this that deeply. was what I want to do. You didn't think, <laughs> how am I happened. going to do that? I had no clue. I would have actually benefited from uh, hearing this podcast episode back when I was in grad school.
1: And we talked about it last time, Josh, you you did some teaching. You had students, you uh, presumably, I, you know, I can probably guess what your teaching philosophy was. I, I should ask you what it was. But I, I'm going to guess that you took the humor route. Am I right that you, you tried to tell jokes and interject some levity into your lessons?
0: Well, Dan, it's hard for me not to do that no matter what I'm talking about. With people, but that was a really interesting question. Um, you know, on my own career journey, it's funny, I was following this educational path. I went, I even after graduate school, I entered this postdoc that was a teaching postdoc position specifically for people who wanted to become teaching faculty (laughs) at the university level. Um, and during that process, you know, I think I talked about this actually, I think I still owe people. (laughs) To talk about the rest of my story at some point, but um, but yeah, at some point I realized maybe that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, but I was really up to that point, Dan, where I was starting to think about these very things that Elena was talking about. You know, once I apply for these jobs, how would I answer those questions, like in an interview? How would I articulate what's my philosophy on teaching? Because I think sometimes, and this is probably true when anything we we like to do or we're interested in doing you know, we might have this feeling that I think I'm interested in education or I think I'm interested in teaching, but then can you really articulate, well, what is it about teaching? What type of teacher or educator are you going to be? What motivates you to do that? Um, what's your philosophy, um, as was said here? Uh, and that takes some thought. Yeah, there's, there's nuance,
1: and I don't think I appreciated that, that you do have, even within the role of, I'm choosing the teaching branch of this career path, there's branches from there, different types of teaching you can do, different types of educator that you can be. And Elena now, even as a person who works in industry, considers herself an educator. And she described that really nicely at the end, I thought.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to pull out a couple a couple things that, that you all talked about that really jumped out to me. Uh, the first one was when Elena was talking about some of her early days in teaching and educating. And, and she was talking about realizing that initially she was actually being the educator that she never wanted to be. And it made me think a little bit instantly, Dan, about parenting, about <laughs> being a parent. And I don't know if this is true for you, uh, but for those of you who find yourselves in a position where you're having to parent or be a parent, I would imagine most people will find themselves in the situation where you have this out-of-body experience where you realize you were actually emulating some aspect of your own parent or parental figure that you totally did not like. <laughs> yes. As a child. You're like how and, and I think we say all the time, like oh, Because yeah. I said so, Josh. <laughs> That's right. You say, hey brought that. you into this world, I'll take you out. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but you've you've experienced this. You've experienced this, Dan.
1: Yeah, you you fall into a a groove, a rut, whatever feels comfortable, whatever seems uh, like what you maybe experienced. And if you're not mindful about how you're teaching or how you're parenting, then you will travel down that path. And I think be less effective. And and I think you're what you're saying, Josh, is as a parent, you need to be mindful of how you're parenting. Catch yourself. Think about
0: uh, the way you're speaking to the kids and. Oh yeah, no. I think you hit the nail on the head, Dan. That that importance of that mindfulness and that self awareness. You know, I realize, like with, with the the parenting example, you recognize, okay, I'm doing these things. I'm teaching in this way, or I'm parenting in this way that I don't want to do. I'm you know I'm replicating this thing that I've observed in the past, but I don't want to be that way. And it actually takes a lot of intentional mental energy to combat those tendencies. Um, and I think. The reason is, anytime we're doing a new thing, we take our cues on what we've observed in our own life experiences up to that point. And so I think that's how our brains first develop, how we think a typical parent would behave, or to follow this out, how a typical professor should be, how a typical teacher should be based on the teachers and professors you have had. So when we're starting out as teachers or educators ourselves, We don't know what to do because we've never done it before, so we emulate teachers and professors that we had, whether they were good or bad. Um, And it really does take time and a lot of self-reflection and mindfulness, as you said, to grow as successful educators ourselves. And I think it's important that we don't have to do that journey entirely alone. There's probably plenty of people out there, peers or, um, or mentors we can turn to who can give us some feedback as well.
1: That's great. And I I think the other parallel is you're always evolving as an educator. And I think she said this, that today I am educating in a certain way, but I'm always learning. I'm I'm responding to the feedback. I'm having my TAs of the course that maybe I'm instructing give me feedback. I'm having my professors sit in on my class and give me feedback. And over time I might change. And maybe my personality changes. Maybe the tools that I have at my disposal change and I think all of that is okay. I think that same is true for parents. Parents hopefully get better over time as they encounter different aspects of their kids, but um, that that constant evolution doesn't, it means that you don't have to be perfect on day one, and I think that's something that people need to understand.
0: That's certainly true. Like, you will grow and you will be better as an educator as you go. Uh, I guess, how do you reconcile that with your students in your classroom when you're still learning (laughs) when you're closer to the beginning of your journey. Uh, Maybe it's just being upfront with them. I don't know, being honest with them.
1: You know, I think there's a a value in being at that early stage in your training as an educator because you are, hopefully you're self-aware. Hopefully you're being mindful. You're paying attention to how you can respond, not in a way that is paralyzing as you stand in front of the classroom and you are so self-reflective that you can't get the words out. But hopefully you are responding to your students and that you still care about how they are learning. Um, I actually think there's a a danger as professors get on in years as they teach the same class, the 50th time, that they just kind of check out. You know, they say the words, they read the slides, they administer the test, but they just don't care anymore. And I think that's actually more dangerous. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm comfortable with a little bit of nervousness when I'm in front of an audience, I'm comfortable with this feeling a little bit edgy, a little bit new, because then I think you're bringing your entire brain to that experience. And so I think that's okay for, for first year, second year, fifth year educators.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. And and I, as I was actually just reflecting on my own experiences with professors, especially in undergrad, some of the most effective ones I had that I remember being really good, some of them were newer. To to teaching and you're you're totally right, Dan. Some of the worst ones that I can remember were very experienced, at least in the number of years. But you're right. Like compared to the newer the newer teachers who were clearly maybe they weren't as polished, but they were clearly engaged in teaching, in teaching that class and in teaching well versus just going through the motions. Uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Josh,
1: I I don't think I had this experience, but when you taught courses, did you get student feedback?
0: I did. I did get some student feedback.
1: They probably said, great Yoda shirt. You're wearing a Yoda shirt right now (laughs) for the listeners at home. Uh,
0: Just to be clear, Dan, and you wouldn't know the nuances of my Yoda shirt, uh, this is a baby Yoda. This is a Grogu (laughs) I see. Sorry. Sorry about that. This is a Grogu. That's Okay. You probably oh, don't yeah. remember. Feedback. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I, I don't remember, but you know, I think that's insightful. The fact that I don't remember, I think one thing that that Elena mentioned. I mean, I'm a, a white man. I think there's certain types of feedback that I was, or certain types of irrelevant and abusive feedback that I was likely immune to, or could even let it roll off in a way that wouldn't, it you know, wouldn't stick with me. You would have um, laughed so. about it. Probably, probably. So, um, but I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely, definitely had some thoughts about about what you and Elena talked about, and and I actually have some questions for any of our listeners who might be living in that world, in that academic education, that sort of higher education teaching world. Um, I've not been in that environment for a long time, but I know at one time those teaching evaluations were actually part of your tenure and promotion. Exactly, package,
1: and probably not scrubbed for irrelevant and irreverent comments.
0: Yeah, probably not. And and I would be interested to know from people who are still um, living in that world, in that career path, have there been any changes there? Has there been any recognition by uh, departmental leaders and committees that this is this can be a real problem that's not equitably applied across all? faculty, you know, women, uh, women of color, especially having to deal with different types of feedback that are just not useful and actually are abusive and not, and, you know, really beyond, I guess what it got me thinking about is going beyond just not taking that into account, but are there ways to actually prevent or minimize that type of feedback from even getting to, you know, even getting to the faculty teaching those courses? I was even thinking, I wonder, you know, you could imagine, like, if we were brainstorming this, Dan, like, is there a way that departments or leaders could kind of do a first pass and triage feedback that is just completely irrelevant or abusive? And the only feedback that then gets through is that which is is reasonable um, and on topic.
1: I mean, I think that's true for some of the written comments. I wonder, now that you talk about it being actually used as a measure in tenure decisions, um, I remember filling out student evaluations and they were kind of liker scales. It's a one to five, strongly agree, strongly disagree type of scale. And I wonder if my my biases, my impressions are getting encoded into actual numbers. And so that when a tenure committee says, oh, this faculty member got a 3.5 and this one got a 4.2, you know, I'm not even looking at the description of whether I didn't like how this professor dressed, I'm just looking at the raw numbers and I wonder if those numbers also could contain those biases. I don't know. I don't remember how, I don't know how it works now, but I remember at the time we filled out bubble sheets for our our professors.
0: I mean, certainly Dan, any, you know, any type of survey or assessment like that that's subjective is also going to be uh, rife for bias. So certainly that is going to exist. I guess my hope would be that in 2022 tenure and promotion committees would be knowledgeable enough Let's make a bet on it, Josh. You want to make a bet on it? <laughs> I know I'm saying this. Put your money where your answer. mouth is. I know what the answer actually is. I think it's important to have this conversation. And again, I do. I would like to hear from folks out there who have more knowledge about how this information is used for faculty who do teaching or primarily teaching um, institutions. Um, I know at research institutions, <laughs> for better or worse, yeah, some of the faculty teach courses, but no one really cares how good they are at it. It's not at all factored in their tenure promotion, but this was, at least I know at some time, a really big deal, a really big part of a faculty's tenure promotion um, at a primarily teaching institution. But, you know, one thing I think is important to say is I don't want to give the impression that I think, well, let's just completely do away with all student feedback for, um, for instructors, because I don't think that's necessarily the right move. Um, you know, Dan, have you ever done in your, in your career, have you ever been part of a 360 evaluation? You oh, I have.
1: That? It's been a long time, but yes, I have.
0: Yeah. I did one of these, um, a few years ago and for episode one hundred and eighty, three hundred and sixty 360 <laughs> evaluation. See, it's all coming <laughs> back. Oh, we've mentioned 360 at least twice on the show. That's amazing. But, you know, it was one of the most, uh, useful exercises, feedback exercises that I personally have been. You should describe
1: of. it before you get too far down this road, uh, praising it because not everybody knows what it is.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Dan. So yeah, a 360 evaluation is is a holistic type of, a holistic way to get feedback from stakeholders that interact with you professionally at all different levels, right? So it might be, and I think this is especially useful maybe farther on uh, as you as you advance in your career a little bit. Um, so for example, you might get feedback or, or feedback might be provided from someone who is your supervisor. And, and often we have lots of opportunities for our supervisors to give us feedback. But what a 360 does is then you might also have feedback that's that's captured from your peers who are in similar positions to you. And then also feedback from maybe people who are your constituents or people that are below you in the, in the corporate structure. Um, so, or, or maybe in an educational setting, I know in mine, there actually was some feedback from students who were in my program. And so this is all sort of anonymously uh, compiled and tabulated and it's pretty in depth and it, it gets it the way you interact, um, in your job, From all different directions, from all different levels. And, and what I think is useful or what was useful for me about that exercise is again, not just getting feedback from those above you, right. From your, your supervisors, because, you know, honestly, dad, you know, you, your supervisor might think you're awesome. Like you, every time they send you an email, you immediately drop everything and tend to it. (laughs) But the person who's having to come to you for stuff, like who's below you on the corporate structure, might think you're a total jerk face, right? Or you might realize, you know, all humor aside, that you are just completely discounting their contributions, right? Or you might, you learn some really important things about yourself. Or your supervisor might not know that your Mm -hmm. subordinates think you're great.
1: Like a lot of things can happen in a 360 that, uh, because I think other people will read your review, right?
0: yeah that's a good point. There might be things you're bringing to the table that would be invisible to your super that's true um but i think I think the parallel could be here with these student evaluations is I think it's important you know students are an important constituency of an instructor right and I think it's important to some degree I think any teacher, any instructor. Would want to know, like, well, how are my students receiving this information? <laughs> sure. You know, so I think there's, I think it's not a black or white situation here, but there's got to be a way to allow instructors to get this feedback in a way that is actually constructive, and at, at the very lowest bar, um, not right for ab- abusiveness.
1: Yeah, I just wonder. You know, the, the thing that stood out to me, Elena said, students are not trained in pedagogical methods, right? They don't necessarily have insight into um, effective ways of teaching. They do know what they like and don't like, which is a slightly different question to ask. And uh, I think some of their grades might be an interesting indicator. So if you are able to bring students who maybe started with a B average up to a B plus average with your course or whatever it is, I know that there's some grade inflation questions. But I I feel like it's going to be tough to ask Um, tell me what you feel about this course. And somebody says, well, I give it two stars because I don't like the way she talks. Well, that's not exactly describing whether she's a good educator or not. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Or, or, you know, maybe, maybe you didn't fully engage in the course, right? And that's why, you know, the tools were there for you to succeed, but you, you know, you didn't utilize them. And so that was the experience you had, but it wasn't that it was a bad course, I have a, an example that's made me think about is I was, I was in a group that was, we were working on the curriculum for this course for first-year graduate students, first-year PhD students, and, and the goal of this course was really to help them build some skills that were important for being a scientist outside the lab. And so one aspect of this course was there was this scientific writing component because we felt, all right, it's important for first year grad students to get some experience doing some scientific writing. So they had to do these writing exercises. And, and you know, it was a, as far as the whole course goes, this component was probably one that was a little more work intensive because they actually had to, like, think about the project and write up something, get feedback and make edits and do all that and so we got a number of students at the end of the course who gave feedback that said, "Oh, you should really drop the writing component." Yeah, I'm, you know, we're already good writers. I'm already a good writer, so that was just a lot of work for nothing. And it kind of goes back to what Elena said about like these students <laughs> aren't experts in pedagogy, so you know you take some of their advice with a grain of salt. These students, we didn't they like didn't... writing. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was like their feedback.
0: Work. But I'm here to tell you they did not have it all figured out (laughs) when it came to scientific writing. And, you know, we would see them improve, too. But from their perspective, they didn't know what they didn't know. They were like, oh, we're already good at this. We don't need to spend all this time doing it. So at some point, you do have to decide what you are willing and not willing, what type of advice you're willing to take and not take from the students in your class. Same with kids. My kids don't like (laughs) eating vegetables, but they should eat vegetables. It's not fair you don't let me stay on my... Tablet for I can't stay 12 all night hours a day.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I think, uh, Josh, I think the feedback that I I would take from this, I I think that student responses are imperfect. We can agree on that, and the best advice is to have somebody else look at them, so that you don't have to take into your mind all of this negativity, this bias, whatever it is. Josh, if you gave me your student reviews, I could very easily pick out the things that were useful, the things that were not useful, and just hand you back the good parts. Not necessarily the parts that were positive. They could be things that you need to change, but at least they're not full of garbage and bias and hate. Yeah, I think that's
0: I think that's a great strategy, Dan.
1: I do that I do that with all our podcast reviews, Josh. I never forward them when it's just vitriol and hate.
0: Well, I so we don't really have like 99% five-star reviews. This is this just what you sent me? No, we
1: do. We do, Josh. 99%. Oh, okay. Oh, cool, 100%.
0: Cool. <laughs> well, again, Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk to Elena, especially um, thanks to Elena for, for sharing all of her time with us and all this information. And again, um, we would recommend you check out her recent book, What I Wish I Knew, A Field Guide for Thriving in Graduate Studies. I hope, and I think you'll find it useful. All right, Josh.
1: Another great conversation. I hope that you and I, as a podcast, eventually develop an educational philosophy because technically we are educating people, hopefully, right now. I think our philosophy is a little bit slapdash at the moment, so uh, maybe we can do better.
0: It'd be good exercise for us to sit down over a cold uh, Belgian-style ale or probably an IPA and come up with.
1: I'm afraid that most of our philosophy is just Belgian-style ales right now. (laughs)
0: with or without spices exactly alright right, well we'll see you next time see you next time